Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with events of violence that may be disturbing to some. Listener discretion is advised. A promising young actress and an obsessed fan with a postcard and a gun. This is Method and Madness, Episode 1, The Murder of Rebecca Schaefer. I'm your host, Dawn Gandhi. The body was dismembered. A ransom note was discovered. Hikers stumbled upon the nude body of a local... Police are looking into the brutal slaying of a young woman. There may be a clue in a released 911 call. The victim said she was stalked for five years. Held captive inside a storage container. It was a twisted mix of obsession and revenge. No weapon has been located. Shot while asleep in their beds. Method and madness. She was the innocent girl next door. That was what attracted to him to her. And this is, I think, not uncommon with these celebrity stalkers. Uh, the celebrity stalkers are attracted to the image of accessibility. It's not a question of love. It's not a question of ideals. That's prosecutor Marsha Clark. But more on that in a bit. First, let's go back to a century before Instagram Long before likes and upvotes, when tagging someone just meant playing a game in the backyard. Well, celebrity obsession is known to have officially begun, reportedly, in 1910. It was the introduction of Florence Lawrence, a Canadian-American, the first real movie star. Later, the 50s brought Elvis, and in the 60s, Beatlemania, of course, screaming fans passing out at live performances— of the Fab Four. Decades later, MTV was introduced to America in 1981, and musical artists like Tiffany and New Kids on the Block entered our living rooms daily. In addition to performing at shopping malls to starstruck teenagers, heartthrobs like Corey Haim graced the covers of Tiger Beat and Sixteen magazines. Torn pages wallpapered the bedrooms of adoring fans. Teens would stand outside hotels for hours hoping to catch a glimpse or to even touch, maybe even rip off a piece of a jacket of their favorite stars. We're talking about the 80s, a decade that said goodbye to disco and welcomed a new generation of teens and fandom. Before we get into the subject of today's episode, let's explore a little about the dangerous side of celebrity obsession. In 1980, 25-year-old Beatles fan Mark David Chapman shot and killed John Lennon outside of his apartment building in New York City. Chapman had recently begun to feel anger towards Lennon over his religious beliefs and lavish lifestyle. In 1981, 25-year-old John Hinckley Jr. shot and wounded President Ronald Reagan in a desperate attempt to garner attention from teen actress Jodie Foster, who he'd seen featured in Scorsese's film, Taxi Driver. Unable to befriend Foster, Hinckley decided to impress her with his attempted assassination. Celebrity obsession was in full swing, and trying to make a mark on history was leading to deadly results. Something about celebrities gives the public the impression that these stars are on an untouchable pedestal, that they're flawless and almost superhuman, 
Most, however, understand that deep down, celebrities are human, and those humans are just like you and me. They make mistakes, have layers, and are deserving of privacy. Today's case is about a fan, an obsessed one, with a history of mental instability. He became fixated with a woman on TV. He even thought he knew her. Now, this is just one example of what can happen when you mix a history of anger and hostility and mental illness with a lack of reality. When an untreated mental disorder is shaken into a cocktail of obsession and perseverance, and to top things off, information, personal information, is readily available to the public. Let's dive in. Rebecca Schaefer was just 21 years old when 19-year-old Robert John Bardo showed up at her apartment door in West Hollywood. Schaefer had recently gained nationwide attention on the sitcom My Sister Sam, which ran for 44 episodes on CBS. Rebecca was born on November 6, 1967, in Eugene, Oregon, the only child to Dana and Benson. Her family moved in 1980 to Portland, and she began modeling for department store catalogs and television commercials as a teen. Robert John Bardo was born on January 2, 1970, and grew up in a large family, the youngest of seven children. The family settled in Tucson, Arizona in 1983, where Bardo attended the Sunnyside School. One of his teachers noted that Bardo had a higher-than-average IQ, and there was nothing wrong with his intellectual capacity, but he was very emotionally impaired. According to Donald Hickman, the school's counselor, Robert Bardo's classmates would tease him, and the student's response was anger. He'd make violent threats toward his peers, as well as displaying anger and hostility toward himself. Hickman's notes during this time that he worked with the troubled student included a direct quote from Robert Bardo. The people at the school did a good job of stopping me from killing myself. They made a mistake because they saved the devil. Now the devil must kill. Robert Bardo also displayed that same hostility and anger at home, at least once swinging and hitting his mother when she refused to let him have cable TV in his room. Robert John Bardo was hospitalized twice between 1984 and 1985, once at the Palo Verde Hospital in Tucson and later at the Tucson Psychiatric Institute. Ignoring medical advice, Bardo's parents removed him prematurely each time. His mother did not recall if he was ever put on medication for any mental disorder. With no friends or girlfriend, Bardo spent most of his time at home watching TV. He became fixated on celebrities like Tiffany and Debbie Gibson, both huge pop stars at the time, and even tried to locate them, but had no success. Another obsession of Bardo's was that of Maine resident Samantha Smith, who in 1982, at the age of 10, gained international attention for a trip she made to the Soviet Union after writing a letter to a Soviet leader expressing her concern for the USA and Soviet Union's relations. Bardo began writing letters to Smith, and she responded to one. 
At age 13, he made a trip to Maine to visit Samantha Smith and was stopped by police when he approached them asking if they knew where the girl lived. The police returned Robert Bardo to Tucson. Samantha Smith later died tragically in a plane crash at the age of 13 in 1985. In the summer of 1984, Rebecca Schaefer moved to New York City to pursue a career in modeling. Her parents supported her solo move cross-country, although they did worry about their only child being so far away. Schaefer reassured her father with these words, "'Remember when you told me, sometimes you have to choose between adventure and regret.'" While struggling to get work due to being deemed too short by modeling industry standards, Rebecca Schaefer worked as a waitress and was later cast in the CBS comedy My Sister Sam, playing Patty, the younger sister to Pam Dauber's Samantha. Her agent, Sue Cameron, described Rebecca by saying she was exactly who she was and was happy with it. Rebecca had a natural star quality, not in a flashy way, but in that girl-next-door energetic, relatable way. Some people just have it, that it factor, and it's apparent when watching Schaefer perform or when she's being interviewed that she was that magnetic. Good morning and welcome to Detroit. This little cutie pie next to me is Rebecca Schaefer. She is Patty Russell and my sister Sam on CBS. Hi, this handsome guy next to me is Joe Penny, who plays Jake Styles on Jake and the Batman, also on CBS. Isn't this your first parade, Joe? While working together on My Sister Sam, Pam Dauber took on a real-life sisterly relationship where Rebecca even stayed with her co-star for some time. As Rebecca was new to the industry and was still considered quite young, one piece of advice that Pam Dauber gave the innocent and naive actress was don't ever put your name on your mailbox. Meanwhile, Robert Bardo, age 16 and a custodian in a fast food restaurant in Tucson, had first seen Rebecca while watching Magnum P.I. A commercial had come on for My Sister Sam. She immediately caught his attention, and he began videotaping episodes of the series, as well as portions of her appearances on the Thanksgiving Day Parade. And happy Thanksgiving. I'm Rebecca Schaefer, and real excited to be doing this parade because I love parades. I did my first one last year up in Toronto, and uh, that's why Joe Penny and I are looking forward to doing this one, right, Joe? His fixation on Rebecca was becoming more and more intense as he wrote her several fan letters. Rebecca always made a point to write back to her fans, and she even offered them advice, to the dismay of her agent, Cameron, who warned her against doing so. Rebecca responded to one letter from Robert Bardo in October of 1986. Now this flipped a switch in him. In his mind, she was reciprocating his feelings. According to him, the postcard read, Robert, your letter was the nicest and realest letter I've ever received. Please take care, heart Rebecca. He became obsessed with her and started making arrangements to go meet her. In the summer of 1987, he boarded a plane and arrived in Burbank in an attempt to meet Rebecca outside of Warner Brothers Studios, where she was filming My Sister Sam. He was carrying a teddy bear and flowers, and when met by studio security, Bardo asked to see Rebecca Schaefer, stating that he knew her and needed to see her. 
Security called Rebecca's trailer to let her know someone was out there and asked if she could come out. She declined the meeting. She didn't know the man at the gate. So Robert Bardo was sent away, but he returned a second time, trying to climb over a gate this time to gain entrance to the studio. Now he was met by John Egger, the former director of studio protection for Warner Brothers Studios. Bardo told Egger how much he was in love with Rebecca Schaefer and that he needed to see her. He was once again sent away, and so he retreated back home to Tucson, defeated. Some reports state that this is when Robert Bardo first started considering that he could harm Rebecca. After My Sister Sam was canceled in 1988 after 44 episodes, Rebecca went on to appear in a few movies, including scenes from the class struggle in Beverly Hills. Of course, Robert Bardo couldn't miss seeing the object of his obsession in a film, and so he checked it out. It was this movie that took Robert Bardo's impression of Rebecca Schaefer from Good Girl to something that he didn't recognize or care for. She had changed. She was no longer the innocent, bubbly girl he had grown to adore. Now, in the movie, Rebecca Schaefer appears in a love scene with a male actor. It's very mild, just a morning-after shot of her and the actor in bed, sleeping. Now, Bardo considered a new plan for meeting Rebecca. There's a saying that there's a thin line between love and hate, which is quite applicable on the subject of stalking. When we read headlines about stalkers, there's usually some history where they're in love with, or they think they are in love with, their object of affection. But does this lead to a happy outcome when those feelings are not only not reciprocated, but even rejected? Nothing good can come of this situation where someone doesn't understand the meaning of respect, let alone love. They surely can't be rationalized with or forced to understand that love is not a one-sided emotion where you completely disregard the feelings of the other person. However Robert Bardo was feeling at this point, whether it was what he thought was love or a combination of love and hate, well, probably a mix of both, he got to work planning. He had heard about the case of Teresa Saldana, a 27-year-old actress who in 1982 was brutally attacked and stabbed 10 times by her own stalker. 46-year-old Arthur Richard Jackson, who was brandishing a five and a half inch hunting knife. In the case of Teresa Saldana, the stalker had sought out her address, which was provided by her own mother. Posing as Martin Scorsese's assistant, Jackson reached out to Teresa's mother by phone and requested her daughter's address so he could contact her about doing a movie. Teresa's mother believed the ruse and gave out her daughter's address. Teresa survived the attack, which had occurred outside her own apartment in broad daylight. She even went on to play herself in the TV movie about her story, Victims for Victims, the Teresa Saldana story. So thinking it would be easy to get Rebecca's address, Bardo hired a PI in Tucson, Anthony Zinkus, on June 1st, 1989. He told Zinkus what he needed to find out where Rebecca Schaefer lived. 
The private investigator went to the DMV and obtained the address. Pretty frightening. It was that easy in 1989 to walk into a building and get anyone's information. And to top it off, Zinkus met Bardo in his office on June 1st and didn't think twice about providing this person with the stranger's address. While Bardo was doing his planning to meet Schaefer, he began writing letters to himself and to his family. He had written one to his sister Arlene, making her promise not to read it until she got on the plane, as she was about to go on a trip. Arlene did read the letter on the plane, and in it, her brother went on and on about his obsession with Rebecca Schaefer and made one particularly chilling comment. R.S. 1967 to 1989. Prepared with the information provided by the P.I., and armed with a gun purchased by his brother, Robert John Bardo took a Greyhound bus from Tucson to Los Angeles. On the morning of July 18, 1989, he began walking around Rebecca Schaefer's neighborhood in West Hollywood, showing her glossy headshot to anyone who he came across, all in hopes of locating her apartment or confirming that the address he was given was indeed correct. He was carrying what's become known as that unofficial murderer's handbook, The Catcher in the Rye, which had also been in the possession of Mark David Chapman and John Hangley Jr. when they committed their attacks on Lennon and Reagan, respectively. Rebecca Schaefer was living on Sweetser Ave in West Hollywood in a two-story, Tudor-style apartment building. Robert Bardo walked up to the front entrance where there was a call box and the names of the apartment residents listed. The name Schaefer was listed for apartment four and Robert Bardo buzzed for her. She was home waiting for the delivery of a script to audition for Coppola's The Godfather Part Three. Imagine the excitement and anxiety she must have been feeling in that moment. The Godfather 1 and 2 were huge successes, and here was Rebecca Schaefer, a young woman from Oregon preparing for a huge opportunity to participate in the third and final film of the franchise. The intercom at the apartment building's door wasn't working, so Rebecca descended the stairs to answer the door, most likely anticipating that a messenger would be on the other side with a script. Instead, she was greeted by an eager-looking, slightly disheveled man. Robert John Bardo showed her the postcard he had received from her years earlier. He introduced himself, said he was from Tucson, Arizona, and that he was a fan of hers. Unknown to Rebecca, Bardo was gripping a plastic bag which contained a gun. But he didn't do anything with it during their brief encounter. Rebecca politely sent him away and went back upstairs to her apartment. What did Rebecca do next? There's no reports that indicate she called someone alarmed. No calls to friends or family to say, hey, there's this creep outside that's apparently a fan and he knows my address. No hint that she was nervous that the stranger at the door would return. It's safe to say that Rebecca Schaefer probably didn't feel she was in any kind of danger perhaps just shrugged it off as a nuisance. According to Robert Bardo, however, he wasn't giving up so easily. He had used his life savings to locate Rebecca Schaefer. But that short conversation wasn't enough for him. He needed to get his money's worth. 
Considering what his next move would be, Robert Bardo went to a local diner, Jan's, which is now apparently a Chipotle, where he ordered onion rings and cheesecake. An hour later, he walked back to Rebecca Schaefer's door, ringing the bell once more. This time, after Rebecca came down the stairs, she was mumbling as she opened the door, annoyed that here was the same man returning. She told him to leave, that he was wasting her time. And Robert Bardo, infuriated by what he perceived as her rudeness, uttered these chilling words. I forgot to give you something. He pulled the gun from the plastic bag and shot Rebecca in the chest at point-blank range. According to him, she yelled why twice as she fell to the ground. Neighbors reported hearing what sounded like a car backfiring, followed by two blood-curdling screams. Rebecca's next-door neighbor, who shared a wall with the actress, heard footsteps from Schaefer's apartment down to the front door shortly before hearing a loud pop, followed by screaming. She dialed 911 immediately. From across the street, another neighbor looked out their window and saw a man in a bright yellow shirt running from the scene. And yet another neighbor rushed to help Rebecca, who was lying in a pool of her own blood in the doorway. He was unable to find a pulse. Rebecca was brought by ambulance to Cedar sinai where she was pronounced dead 30 minutes later, her cause of death a penetrating gunshot to the chest. Robert Bardo had contemplated shooting himself and falling on top of his victim, but instead, he fled the scene and dropped the weapon and postcard into a dumpster. He then returned to Tucson and was seen walking aimlessly in traffic the next day. He was arrested, due in part to a tip that the LAPD had received from an acquaintance of Bardo, who was concerned upon learning of Rebecca Schaefer's death, knowing that the killer had an obsession with the young star. The LAPD had then called the Tucson police and informed them of the tip. Reportedly, Robert Bardo was considering suicide and hoped to be killed by an oncoming car. He leaned his head on the DPS car and started to sob. What did you do? I asked him what was wrong. And he said that I had better arrest him now. And I asked him why and what for, and he said, I shot somebody. Robert John Bardo was prosecuted by Marsha Clark, who later became famous for her role in the O.J. Simpson trial. Clark was pushing for a harsh penalty, saying that Robert Bardo was lying in wait, a method where a person hides and waits for their victim with intent to kill. Clark argued that Bardo arrived at Rebecca's apartment that second time, gun behind his back, with intent to kill her when she came to the door. This was based on the killer's own words in his police interviews, where he described how he approached Rebecca's apartment the second time with the gun in his waistband, still in the plastic bag. The defense argued that Robert Bardo was mentally ill and not in his right mind, where he could be capable of lying in wait. If you actually look at the evidence and not at what the defendant is trying to make you believe, then you will understand that he had 
no uncertainty of purpose. He had no ambivalence. He wrote the letter, and if you look at the letter, there's no ambivalence indicated there. And I asked, I challenged the doctor to show me where it was. He couldn't. He said, of course, there is no ambivalence there. There was no ambivalence. He wanted to kill her. He planned to kill her, and he did. Forensic psychiatrist Dr. Park Dietz examined Robert Bardo for the defense. He had previously studied individuals who had attacked celebrities and government officials. Upon looking at Bardo's writings from school and based on the examination at the L.A. County Jail, Dietz was quite certain that there was something very wrong with Bardo and even found it consistent that he may suffer from schizophrenia. During the trial, it was revealed that Robert John Bardo was fascinated with the 1987 U2 album, The Joshua Tree. He felt that the lyrics of some of the songs on the album were speaking directly to him. Lines like, I have run, I have crawled, I have scaled these city walls only to be with you. Another song, Exit, had these lyrics. His hand in his pocket, his finger on the steel, the pistol weighed heavy, his heart, he could feel, was beating. Exit was played during Bardo's trial, and there's footage of him rocking out to it in his seat. The case was decided by a judge rather than a jury. I think the time has come to make a decision. I find the defendant guilty of first-degree murder, uh, both as premeditated and lying in wait. And I find the special circumstance of lying in wait and that he killed intentionally while lying in wait to be true. Bardo was sentenced at the end of 1991 to life without the possibility of parole. In 2011, he was attacked by a fellow inmate, resulting in Bardo being stabbed 11 times while imprisoned at Mule Creek State Prison. He survived the attack, and as of 2019, he resides at Avenel State Prison in California. What drives a man to go to such lengths to confront someone he doesn't know and then therefore ruin her life and his own? What was it about Robert John Bardo that he couldn't be simply satisfied with a letter from Rebecca Schaefer that instead he got the idea that there was more to it than just a polite actress acknowledging her fans? To understand this, let's look at Bardo's life, those formative years. The faculty at his school were aware that something was off. His mental illnesses were acknowledged in the sense that he was institutionalized twice in his teens. His siblings knew of his obsession and that he was getting a gun. For whatever reason, whether it was shame or complacency or some other motivation, Bardo's parents didn't continue his treatment. Had they continued to seek help for their son, maybe the outcome would be different. There were a ton of missed opportunities to get this guy treatment and possibly prevent future violence. After all, well-adjusted people don't walk around strange neighborhoods with a gun and a copy of Catcher in the Rye. The aftermath of Schaefer's murder led to some changes to California legislation. In 1990, there was the passing of America's first anti-stalking laws— the Driver's Privacy Protection Act was enacted in 1994 and prevented the DMV from releasing personal information. Additionally, 
LAPD put together a unit devoted to keeping celebrities safe from their fans. These changes likely protected other celebrities from potential future attacks, but one has to wonder why these changes weren't made after the attack on Teresa Saldana, which also occurred in West Hollywood. Robert John Bardo may have been unable to obtain Schaefer's address if the DMV was prohibited from giving out information, but unfortunately it often takes a horrific incident for these changes to take place. Celebrity stalking continued, and it still occurs today. Singer Selena was shot and killed by a friend and president of her fan club in 1995. Dimebag Daryl of the band Pantera was murdered by a fan in 2004. In 2016, Christina Grimmie, star of The Voice, was murdered by a fan while she was signing autographs. Some other celebrities have had terrifying encounters but were lucky enough not to be harmed. Brad Pitt and Sandra Bullock are just two examples of celebrities who'd experienced a stalker entering their own home, Bullock while she was sleeping in her own bed. Even with positive change and with stalking being a crime in all 50 states, it's often a misunderstood issue. An estimated 6 to 7.5 million people are stalked in a one-year period in the United States. Nearly one in six women and one in 17 men have experienced stalking victimization at some point in their lifetime. About half of all victims of stalking indicated that they were stalked before the age of 25, and the majority of victims are stalked by someone they know. And that does it for the first episode. Thank you for listening to Method and Madness. This is an independent podcast, so the best way you can support is to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast or on Podchaser. I'm on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. There's a Method and Madness page on Facebook as well. To chat or discuss the episode, reach out to me at MethodAndMadnessPod at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Method and Madness is researched, written, and hosted by me. It is sound edited by Moen Spo. Thank you to Faith and John of the Mission Rejected podcast and to Rohan for lending their voices for the theme music. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with dark and disturbing subject matter. For crisis support, text hello to 741-741.